Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could book some rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single-topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. everybody and welcome to another edition of the rock and roll librarian with me as always well probably about once a month (laughs) is yes the rock and roll librarian herself all the way from the san francisco public library shelly Sorensen. how you doing shelly i'm doing good how are you i'm doing pretty darn good we're gonna do this in the evening which means we get to drink a little bit here yes sir so hopefully we're not uh sloshing our words here by the end (laughs) this is my after work beer people so i deserve it yes yes it's uh miller time isn't it well, n- not Miller time. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're too cool for that. Huh? Yes. Way too cool. <laughs> anyway, hey, you know what we did this time? We started with a song, which was to clue, uh, you know, those in the know about the book that we're going to talk about today. What, uh, what was the song? And what are we going to dive into, Shelley? <laughs> well, the song is Testimony. And it is also the title of the book that I read uh, by Robbie Robertson Uh, about his life and especially his career with the band named The Band. Yes, The Band. And we'll get into why they're called The Band. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. Like when I tell people I'm reading a book about Robbie Robertson, especially if they're quite a bit younger than me, which more and more people are these days. <laughs> um, yeah, they're like The Band, you know, very quizzical, like, who, which what? band? What band? Who are uh, you talking about? So he yeah. turns into an Abbott and Costello routine. I going to say right. an Elvis Costello first, right. routine. Who's yeah. on first? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I can remember the first time somebody was trying to tell me about the band and I'm like going, 
And their name is? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So Robbie Robertson has finally written his, uh, uh, is it autobiography? Yep. Yeah, oh. he wrote he wrote the book. and uh-huh. um, No ghostwriter? Just Robbie it, himself? It uh, doesn't seem to be a ghostwriter. Wow. You For can imagine. Canadian? He's a That's pretty amazing. good writer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Well, so he's, he's a good writer. He's the librarian a good writer. says he's a good writer. Yeah, so and he, he, uh, he, his punctuation is probably, uh, and spelling is Top notch, right? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's just part of writing. Of course, but, uh, of course. He, um, yeah, he's uh, he's a good writer, and actually says that he has some kind of uncanny memory uh, that he's inherited from his ancestors. So, which he would have to to write this book because there is a lot of detail and a lot of really really good stories in it. It was really hard to kind of choose the ones I wanted to talk about because yeah, it's a big book, right? Yeah, so many amazing stories. And, you know, he met so many, you know, musicians and interesting people over the years, of course. And well, so, anybody who's seen uh, The Last Waltz, uh, probably the greatest uh, rock and roll concert film ever, you know, all of the guests, uh, you know, is a big draw to that. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, The Last Waltz just uh, passed its 40th anniversary here last November. That's right. And yeah. it was recorded, uh, what, about 10 minutes away from where we're at right now. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I saw this great band. The old uh, uh, Bill Graham place. I, I saw a band a few weeks ago called Midnight North who did uh, basically half of their set was covers of the band music. That was really, oh, really? a really great concert. It was at Great American Music Hall. Oh, really? So yeah. a tribute to the band. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Ah. Really great harmonies. Uh, well, band. let's let's get into it. Let's um, let's talk about uh, Robbie's life and all of those rock and roll stories. Yep. I know that uh, he started off very young, and uh, wasn't he? He's out of Toronto. Uh, I know he's Canadian. Is that right? He's out of Toronto. That's right. Yeah. He, right. he was born in 1943, and his mother Dolly, who I may still be alive. I'm not sure. She is uh, or was a Mohawk Indian and she married a white man who uh, was Robbie's father, at least who he thought was his father for the first 13 years of his life. And his actually his given name is Jamie. Many people don't know that. Jamie Robertson, named after his dad, James. Mm -hmm. And uh, he grew up in a very diverse neighborhood in Toronto, but spent time on the Indian Reserve as well and had, you know, many relatives that he visited there a few times a year and loved the freedom of being a kid on the reserve. And he also, his Indian relatives played music also. So he came by his uh, craft very honestly. But he also, of course, took guitar lessons as a boy and got a, an electric guitar at a certain point and was in Toronto when rock and roll hit really hard. So he got to see a lot of great music in Toronto and see the traveling shows come through Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis Presley and, you know, all the late 1950s, uh, you know, exciting stars. Right, yeah. right, right. So, and then I believe he, he hooks up with Ronnie Hawkins uh, when he's like 16 years old. Is, is that right? 
Yeah, he was in a, a little band uh, called the Swades at the time when he was a teenager, mm-hmm. and they opened for Ronnie Hawkins oh, and the Hawks. Okay, at the time, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks played very primitive rock and roll, rockabilly, uh, and <laughs> he was a, oh, a real yeah. showman, a real you know, yeah, powerhouse ladies' man, and had you know people in his band that a big wanted personality. To put on, we might yeah, say a good show a good show and so he he hung out to watch the hawks uh and you know and just kind of tried to just hang out with them and see what they were doing and make himself useful and be kind of an apprentice Uh, when he was about when he was about 14 or 15 yeah by the time uh he was 16 ronnie hawkins said hey you know why don't you come down to arkansas an audition for the band, we need a new guitar player. Well, he had to talk his mother into that. Of course, he's 16 and he's going to take the train from Toronto all the way down to Fayetteville, Arkansas. And somehow he convinced her that this was his dream and she allowed him to do it. Wow. What a mom. Yeah. Very cool mom. Yeah. Would you do that? Well, if my kids had a passion and a drive, I might. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Hey, moms out there. Take a listen. (laughs) All right. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play a little bit of Ronnie Hawkins so people know where that comes from. And like you said, that uh, primitive rock and roll, we're going to do Who Do You Love? Walk 47 miles of Bob White. Use a cold mistake for a necktie. Got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake high. Got a brand new chimney made on top, made from a human skull. Come on, Robin, let's take a little walk, tell me. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Yeah, most people probably know the George Thorogood version of this, but. Uh, man, Ronnie does a ripped-up version. I'm cool with that. Yeah, he's a, a wild character. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, um, when Robbie got... I think he, I, he's still alive. Yeah. He's I think like he... 83 years old, but oh, he's, yeah. he's still out Good there. Good for him. Yeah. He didn't go down the wrong path. No. No. Uh, Levon Helm was in the band when Robbie hooked up with them. So Ronnie and Levon were both from Arkansas and, you know, the Mississippi Delta. And and Robbie was just thrilled to be down in the South because that was the place. It was like the genesis of all that music. Yeah. He said it was Mm -hmm. like rockabilly boot camp, you know, and then Johnny Cash came from there. B.B. King, uh, Elvis Presley, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, Sonny boy williamson robert johnson they all came from the delta area and he loved that music so he was just like soaking it up he was still 16 and touring around with ronnie hawkins and the hawks by the way he got the gig and uh yeah let's hope so yeah he you know they were in these clubs and he's only 16 and they realized you know ronnie had to kind of keep him sheltered and keep him kind of out of the way or they would have been busted for having an underage kid you know in in the bars so they were you know a real really interesting band for robbie to hang out with and um levon was a great teacher and was like a a big brother to him and taught him all the arrangements and you know 
played various instruments besides the drums, too. One of the fun things that happened was, uh, you know, they played both in the South and in Southern Ontario, which is kind of an interesting tour circuit. But Mm. at one point they were playing, I think it was in Toronto, they were playing across the street from Bo Diddley and they, you know, hung out. Like Robbie went to see Bo Diddley play and then Bo Diddley came back to his room and played for him and he was just entranced by Bo Diddley and um, watching him play and incorporated, you know, lifting some of his licks to incorporate into the Hawks and really grooving on uh, Bo Diddley's uh, incredible looking square body guitar, custom built by Gretsch. That that made a big impression on our young Robbie. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing is that Robbie started out playing bass for the Hawks and then was graduated to rhythm guitar and then finally made it to lead guitar. So he wasn't the, you know, guitar uh, gunslinger from the very beginning, but he was the youngest and whitest blues boy around at that time in 1961. Well, let's play a little of Bo Diddley that uh, Robbie kind of lifted some of those licks from. I'm going to play Pretty Thing. I, I can hear some of Robbie's uh, rhythmic playing there, definitely. Uh, so now the Hawks. Yeah. Okay, the Hawks become the band. And it, it, you mentioned Levon Helm, of course. Uh, and I think Robbie and Levon were kind of like the two primary pillars of uh, what became the band. But uh, the other guys are just as instrumental. Uh, and maybe less well-known. And uh, let's see, that's uh, Rick Danko on bass, Richard Manuel on um, piano. Keyboards, on, yeah. yeah. And then um, Garth, uh, what's Garth's? Hudson. La- Garth Hudson, right? Garth yeah. Hudson on... Uh, Saxophones on, and, and piano and, yeah, and organ. And organ, right, right. You know, the interesting thing is they all played eventually many different instruments and kind of switched it up, which you don't see in concert too much, but you know, on their recordings, they're all kind of moving around and taking yeah. different instruments. Yeah, they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Does he talk about the story about... Um Garth and how he joined the band? Oh, yes. So, you know, they were all, you know, quite young. Of course, that's the way rock and roll is. I mean, they were 18. Rick and Richard were both 18 uh, when they joined. And Garth Hudson was a, a classically trained musician. And uh, Ronnie had to go to his parents and talk him into letting him be in a rock and roll band because they were like, why Why would we want him to do that? We've spent all this money right, sending right, him right. to school to train him to yes. be, you know, a music teacher or there's play no, in a... There's no future in rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, play in, right. in a, you know, a symphony or something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. So what they, what Ronnie did um, to talk him into it was that he would also be 
the music, kind of like the staff, right. the band music teacher. Yeah, and they had to pay him, right? Yeah, and, and each member of the band had to pay him $10 a week for <laughs> music lessons, yeah. which well, is a funny story. It's and, awesome. you know, and Ronnie Hawkins, uh, as um, Robbie describes him, he wasn't just a band leader. He was, and a lead singer, he was actually kind of like a talent scout. He was oh, always yeah. on the lookout for oh, yeah. really young, inc- incredibly, you know, talented people to add to his band. And in a way, it kind of, you know, worked against him in the end, but we'll get to <laughs> that. Got, yeah. yeah. Musicians yeah. that were above and beyond uh, his capabilities, I think, uh, yeah. is where that went. So, And like I said, you know, they, they played in Southern Ontario a lot. And by this time, right. you know, all those other guys, they were Canadian as well. Mm-hmm. So now we've got what, four Canadians and two Arkansas guys um, when they played Arkansasans. in... Arkansasans? Arkansasians, <laughs> I don't know. When, when they played in um, Toronto, the interesting thing Arcasites. was that Robbie's you know, family, he had a very interesting family because like I alluded to before, his father ended up not being his birth father. Oh, and really? His, his parents separated when he was a teenager and divorced because... Because his dad, Jim, started drinking a lot and was, you know, kind of violent with his mother. And they, so she divorced him. And then when after, you know, when that was going on, she said, you know, he's not your real father, which was a big surprise, of course, to Robbie. Yeah. And uh, she explained that Robbie's father was actually a Jewish man who she, you know, had a relationship with when Jim was off in the military. But Alex was was his dad's name was killed in a in a car accident before Jim came home and Dolly was pregnant already. So Jim married Dolly. They had this baby and uh, Robbie learned that his father was this kind of well-off Jewish man uh, attached to a, a very nice Jewish family, except for that they were kind of involved in the underworld and smuggling stolen diamonds. So... <laughs> It was, you know, kind of an int- like a, an interesting family to be reunited with. But when yeah. he played in um, Ontario, you know, they like he had his Indian uncles and cousins and aunts come, and his Jewish family with his his uncles that he got quite close to, and his mother Dolly and his father, his you know adoptive father Jim, who you know was still in his life. So, uh-huh. so the rest of the guys were like. It's always scratching their heads, like, "What's going on here? Who are all these people? You know, how do they? How are they related to you?" So that was kind of an uh, interesting part of the book. That's quite a background. Yeah, who knew? All right, so let's uh, get me to becoming the band. Yes. Well, um, actually. They didn't become the band until quite a bit later. Um, They left Ronnie Hawkins at a certain point. They kind of, you know, outgrew him, I suppose. And he, you know, wasn't really singing with them. He had gotten married and wasn't really singing with them much anymore. And so they decided to... Do their to own leave thing. him and become Levon and the Hawks, which morphed into the lovely name of the Canadian Squires, which reminds me of the Pendletones, which was what the Beach Boys were first. Right. And and then uh, they they played. They went to New York City to do some recordings. And when they were in New York City, Robbie met John Hammond Jr., who was a blues artist oh, yeah. and yeah. Um, important John. in yeah. the music business. Yeah, whose father, the Talent Scout's Talent Scout. Right. Yeah, Columbia, yeah. So... 
they um, when they were in New York City, they took John Hammond and said, hey, Robbie, you want to go? I, you know, let's hang out and let's go see this friend of mine who's recording, you know, an album. And they dropped by the studio and there was Bob Dylan, who had just recorded like a Rolling Stone and wanted to play it back for them. So he listened to the song and was, of course, really impressed. It was like nothing he'd ever heard before. Oh, that old song? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let's play a little bit. Okay. Of Like a Rolling Stone. So that's how Robbie met Bob Dylan. And of course, Robbie and the band uh, become very entwined with Bob Dylan for the next several years. That's right. Robbie describes Dylan as a lightning bolt. He was, you know, had a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, just charisma and everything. Oh, yeah. Bob told Robbie about playing at the Newport Folk Festival with the Butterfield Blues Band, of which um, Mike Bloomfield was was one of the members. And they and actually Mike Bloomfield plays on Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. And a lot, Al Cooper, too. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob uh, wanted to hang out with um, Robbie and they kind of played around, you know, they jammed a little bit together and it turned out that Bob offered Robbie a job. Oh. It was just two concerts. Just just Robbie himself? Yeah. He just wanted Robbie to play and be his lead guitarist because Bloomfield wasn't interested. He just wanted to play the blues. Uh, yes. That's his. That was yep, his, that his was passion. His thing. Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, Robbie said he wouldn't do it without at least leave on. So they went off and did these two gigs. And I don't know if people know about the, you know, Bob's uh, going electric at the Newport Folk Festival, which he said he told Robbie it didn't go very well, which was kind of an <laughs> understatement. You know, people hated it and they booed and all that stuff. But what Bob said before they went on, before he and uh, Levon went on with him, he said, just remember tonight, don't stop playing no matter what. And, you know, they didn't really understand what he meant. So they went in, they hit the stage, they played plugged in and the audience unleashed its fury. Bob's old folk fans, of course, hated hearing the electric versions that Bob Dylan was doing of his music. But Robbie realized that was kind of just a game like that, that people realized, oh, when you go to a Dylan concert and he's playing electric, the cool thing to do is boo. (laughs) So Robbie decided it didn't bother him. They weren't listening, you know, they they weren't really commenting on his performance. It was just kind of that's, that's part of the show, you know, is booing. So... You know, Dylan liked the experience and he decided he wanted them to come along for the entire 
tour. So Robbie said that they would do it if the Hawks, all of the Hawks could come along and be the backing band. And and that was what happened. And and there you go. And that's that's how the band becomes the band for Bob Dylan. It became Bob's band. Right. Right. Well, let's play a little cut from Bob Dylan. I think Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. Good one. song i always loved that song um that's actually from blonde on blonde which is a bob dylan album that robbie was invited to go to nashville and record on and he had a really great time playing on that song and he said that um it was hard to concentrate on playing it because the whole time the band the other musicians were hearing these outrageous words Bob was belting out and they had a hard time not laughing while they were playing <laughs> <laughs> but you know in the meantime there they were on this tour they stopped over in New York City for a little while to rest and leave on Helm decided that he, he just done, couldn't huh? take it anymore yeah I Robbie and that. Bob were getting closer and Bob was taking Robbie all around New York City and kind of introducing him to people and the, and Robbie was just, you know, kind of exhilarated and having a great time. And and falling Levon, into the rock star yeah, life. Yeah, and, and Levon and he were growing farther apart. So Levon just said, I, I don't know, I don't, I, you know, he didn't want to really want to do it in the first place. You know, we got out of one well, he, other... He, he went and became a farmer or something like that, uh, right? He worked on an oil rig. An oil actually. rig, that's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah. And he was gone for quite, you know, like a couple of years. years, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. So... They had to do without him for a while. They got another. If you see some uh, video of that tour, you'll see a different drummer on it. So anyway, they, you know, they're touring, uh, you know, they, their last show on the Dylan tour, they end up in London and they, the Beatles come by and kind of hang out with them for a while in their hotel room, which was pretty thrilling and play. Uh, yeah, always. Play an al- their new album for Bob, which was Revolver and joked about, you know, how the girls were screaming for the Beatles and Bob said, oh yeah, the girls and boys are screaming at what we're doing, but not in the same way as for you, you know? (laughs) So that was, it was kind of a a funny story. They, they actually, the Beatles kind of come in and out of his life a few different times in the book. So it's impossible to even go through. I think if you're in that stratosphere, uh, hanging out with Bob Dylan, the, you know, right. the Beatles come and go as uh, as uh, as time goes on. They they come and go pretty much about anything with rock and roll from uh, certainly from '64 to '70. So that's right. Yeah. Um, while he was in New York City, also he met somebody else that we've had um, that you've featured on your podcast. Uh, his name is Jimmy James. Jimmy James. I, I think most people know him by Jimi Hendrix. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and right. they they met up and he has uh, interesting stories about them talking about, you know, guitar playing and songwriting and 
how Jimmy tuned his uh, or strung his guitar up so that it didn't go out of tune when he used, used his the whammy uh, bar. Right, right. bar. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was it was really f- fun to read about, you know, these two icons, you know, just kind of being young and getting together and chatting and talking about guitar playing. Well, yeah. let's play a little Jimi Hendrix then. What do you think? Oh, I'd love to hear Jimi Hendrix. How All about- right, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play something deep. So we'll do. Can you please crawl out your window? <laughs> now he sits in your room. He's tuned with the fistful of jazz. Like he's preoccupied with his vengeance. He's cursing the dead that can't answer him back. Jimmy doing Dylan again. <laughs> he he was kind of drawn to Dylan compositions, wasn't he? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, and he did uh, he did damn All fine with them, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. Yeah, Jimmy's, totally Jimmy's another one kind of like uh, like the Beatles. You know, he's one of those guys that just you know anybody who was anybody. He was in the stratosphere. You know, yeah. Beatles and Jimmy or Bob. Those are the three. You know, that's the the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost right there. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to rock and roll. Yeah. So. Now, they end up in Woodstock. And, yep. and this is where, I guess, you know, the Hawks and the Canadian Squires <laughs> really become what we know as the band. This right? is true. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, it basically started with Dylan's motorcycle accident. He, oh, he went yeah. to... There's a lot of things that start with Dylan's motorcycle yeah, accident. Yeah, right. So. He, he went up to Woodstock to convalesce and... And was living there with his, uh, I believe he was married already to Sarah. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, you know, the tour was over and the Hawks are looking for a place to rehearse and to actually finally get down to their own music and their own sound because now they've been a backing band for several years. So um, Sally Grossman, who was Albert Grossman's wife, who was yeah, Bob Dylan's, Dylan's manager, manager mm-hmm. said, hey, you know, you should look around in Woodstock, you know, the, the house are cheap and you could probably get something going up there. So they went up there and they went house hunting and they found this uh, horrible looking or, you know, (laughs) this funny looking house, which was a pink ranch style house in the middle of 100 acres of original mountains, a good sized pond and nothing but space and wilderness all around. But the most important feature was the basement, which they turned into their studio. And Garth Hudson, actually, I don't know if everybody knows this, but he was quite a an electronics and kind of like an experimenter and inventor. And so he was taking all, you know, helping set up the studio, putting rugs down, but also rewiring things and, you know, plugging certain instruments through, you know, organs and I mean, just doing all kinds of stuff that I didn't understand. But that really became their clubhouse and their workshop. And Dylan got involved because he wasn't touring, you know, he was still getting better and he would come by, they would go there every day. Yeah, this is the just, basement tapes come out yeah, of it. Yeah, and just play like no genre of music 
music was off limits. They would just trade instruments and play, and Dylan had his typewriter there and just spewed out lyrics after lyrics after lyrics. They were just amazed and taught them all these beautiful old, you know, folk songs that he also had memorized the lyrics to. They couldn't believe how many words that man had in his head that he could kind of sing out on command. And you yeah, know, he's he's kind of known for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they they all wrote the songs together. You know, they like Dylan would have the words and then he would hand, for example, Tears of Rage to Richard Manuel, who would put some beautiful chord. He's the one that wrote the music to that song, Tears of Rage, which is just an incredible song. I love that song. You know, as Robbie said, songs poured out of Bob and we tore through them. Uh, meanwhile, they knew they had to get Levon back because he was their drummer and they asked him to come back and he did. So he joined them After in two Woodstock. After years on the, uh, on the oil rig. Yeah, he was done with that. <laughs> Wanted to play music again. He'd been playing around, you know, in the Delta area with people, but he, you know, they, they needed to be together and he was happy to be asked to come back and there they all were. And like Robbie said, uh, a lot of the songs they were composing at that time, which is something that I was really drawn to as a teenager was that they weren't songs that reflected their own lifestyle or even the times they were living in. They were really just trying to write interesting songs. It was a a means of storytelling. It was like kind of a Tin Pan Alley tradition. Like, let's just write some songs. They didn't, you know, like, let's write a good story and put some music to it. So, you know, it was all kind of, I don't know, like old fashioned and otherworldly. And um, with this rock and roll mixed in, it was just kind of a magical type of music that didn't fit in anywhere, really. And that became music from Big Pink. That did become music from Big Pink. And they ended up calling themselves the band right before they released that album because they didn't want to be the Hawks. You know, it was kind of a a war-related term in those days. And, you know, everybody in Woodstock was calling them the band anyway, because they were, at that time, they were the only band in the neighborhood. Now, the thing I didn't understand was when they were recording and writing all of these songs, a lot of them that Dylan was writing, he was writing for other people. And so they were basically recording demos of Bob's songs so that the production companies could offer them out to other recording artists. So they had the Basement Tapes, Dylan songs, and then they had the songs that they were working up for their own record. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to play the most famous song from that, which is a great story song because it starts off at... Uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is uh, the home of C.F. Martin Guitars. Ah. It's called The Wait. I put in the Nazareth just a feeling my hand past it. I just need to find a place where I can lay my head. Mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He's just a grin shook my hand Yeah, 
That's uh, an amazing song. And wow. Yeah, you, very iconic. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that song. He, uh, that's been covered so many times. And he, should be, um, yes. You know, he was really influenced by, he read a lot of movie scripts, like classic movie scripts, and they gave him a lot of ideas for his songwriting. And you can kind of tell in that song, you know, the this story is coming. It's a full-blown story oh, that yeah. nobody quite understands, but it has so much depth and so many characters in it. Mm-hmm. it. It is like a movie script. And he was still teaching them that um, they actually had to go, they didn't record these songs for that album at the Big Pink. They had to go into New York City and, you know, into a studio and do it. And he was still teaching them all of their parts, you know, while they were in the recording studio. And it just, uh, they did two takes and it all came together like that with all the staggered really? singing parts. Parts and yeah, because that's that's not easy. No, it's I a mean, complicated song, and they didn't ever work from charts. Even they just had lyrics written down and followed the lyrics. And well, that's somehow, a band that's been playing with each other for ten years. Yeah, right, you know? right. Yeah, that's a really an amazing accomplishment. They basically, you know, they did that album it, and it came out. And um, after that, really, they couldn't live in the Big Pink anymore because the picture was on the cover of the album and they were still trying to fly under the radar. They didn't really want to be, um, to have a lot of public attention. So they... Well, that works for and against them in a lot of ways. I mean, they're a hugely influential band and I think they could have been bigger than they were. You know, it's it's not until uh, later on, you know, they get the accolades that, uh, that they deserve because they are so influential. But, you know, because they were unwilling to do the the star making machinery uh, that's required you know they didn't become you know something like the Eagles or, or CSNY or, or something like that which right. uh, you know they had the chops they they definitely had the band to do that you know but you know that's that's life and that's how they chose for it to be so yeah. there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think yeah I don't really think they wanted that they kind of purposely uh, you know didn't want their faces so much yeah. on yeah. Uh, on the albums they didn't want to really do magazine magazine uh, interviews and covers and stuff like that. Yeah, they were they were unwilling to, to play the game that's required yeah. to to get the uh, the audience that would have made them uh, just you know huge at the moment. Right. I mean, they're legends, so well, you, know, I mean, you still win, you still win. But there's a lot of sadness that comes with this. Band oh yeah. Too in the, in the long Part run of the too. problem was well, when they were recording the Big Pink, they had apparently a pretty drug free environment. They you know they smoked weed and drank some beers and stuff like that. But for some reason, after the album came out they just let loose not not so much Robbie but or Garth but Richard Rick and Levon just got into alcohol prescription pills they wrecked a bunch of cars they just you know really I guess they couldn't handle the I don't know if it was life, life on the road the, yeah. you know it's mostly filled with boredom you know uh, you just you know you're on the bus you move from town to town especially in those days you know you have that moment of two or three hours on stage and uh you know and then you just yeah. do it all over again you gotta wind and, uh, up and then you gotta wind yeah. down and then at that <laughs> time you know drugs started to become a big part of the scene right. and it was readily available right yeah you know, so it's not surprising that uh, some of them came into it so uh, after big pink they they really are the band on their own they're right. not attached to bob dylan anymore right. they've gone and done their thing and then in 69 i think they they come out with their second album which is called the band right yep 
It's called so, the band, or it's also known as the Brown, the Brown album, album right, which I right, did not right, right. know. Yeah, it's because of the sepia-toned uh, photograph on right. the Brown background, yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of great songs that come off of that oh, uh, yeah. as well. Well, so I mean, several great songs. It's now it's starting to get to be I don't know what to play. I know. <laughs> you know, so you know, I guess I might go with uh, the one most people know, and I'll leave a few others because I know we're going to get to the last waltz. I'm going to choose the night they drove old Dixie down because I love that song. You can't go wrong with that one. Right. Yep. A can is a name and I served on the Daniel train Just on much Calvary King and tore up the tracks again In the winter of 65 We were hungry just to Take you back to the Civil War there, huh? Yeah. The funny thing is that was, um, well, of course, inspired by Levon's daddy in Arkansas, who said, I was known to say, the South is going to rise again. So Robbie wanted to write lyrics about the Civil War Southern family's point of view and had to go to the library to read about it because they don't teach that in Canadian schools. So, uh, you know, well, it's kind of funny because we all know about the Civil War. but That's he, a debatable he uh, point of view. <laughs> um, but uh, OK, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Anyway, he told that story when he came and talked to the American Library Association conference a couple of years That's ago. That's right. Because we loved that. Right. We librarians love to hear that people go to the library to research things. Right. But uh, the only thing Levon said was, now don't mention Abraham Lincoln in the lyrics. That won't go down too well. <laughs> no, it never so, does. No. <laughs> South would like to forget him. Yeah. So, yeah. And the other guy's kind of stopped taking so much being so involved in writing the music. They got kind of more, you know, involved in partying and stuff. So Robbie took on more and more of the songwriting, you know, responsibilities for the band, which was, mm-hmm. you know, what he wanted to do. Right. But right. He, he kind of thought of the songs that he was writing about, like, who am I writing this song for and who could sing it really well? And all the Richard and Rick and Levon all had very good and individual and unique voices that he could you yeah. know, pair up yeah. with his songs. Yeah, they yeah they each uh, brought a, a real characterization to uh, to their voice. Yeah, and, uh, I always loved their harmonies and how they passed the vocals around. And, you know, I was a huge band fan when I was a teenager, which was a little bit after the fact. But for mm. some reason, I was very attracted to their music and all their albums. Well, you know, they're kind of rootsy in a lot of ways. And in some ways, they are kind of Rootsy before Rootsy was oh, Rootsy, yeah. you know. Um, you would almost call them Americana, except for that are. they were mostly Canadian. <laughs> well, North Americana. Northern Americana. <laughs> so, so the Brown album comes out in 69, and they're in Woodstock. They recorded uh, Big Pink there, and then, of course, you know, the the 
infamous or famous, or your choice, <laughs> uh, the Woodstock Festival occurs. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know is that they were on the bill, right? They were. And actually, the, that was one of the reasons that they held the, the festival and called it Woodstock, even though it was uh, yeah, was Bob was stuck there. Yeah. There was rehabilitating um, that broken leg. Because the band and Dylan were living in Woodstock and they were, you know, big at the time. And actually, the, I you know, the, wondered about the concert was in was not in Woodstock because they didn't have room for it, but they wanted no. to call it Woodstock anyway. Yeah. Yasgur's Farm. Yeah. Bethel. Bethel, Bethel New right. York. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they agreed to do it and, and they were told, oh, since, you know, this whole thing is kind of named after you and your your town, uh, you can close the show on the third night, which, well, OK, if you yeah. say so, they had to be flown in by helicopter because it was so huge by that time. Oh, yes. And then they were told that Jimi Hendrix arrived and he wanted to close, which was fine with the band because it was getting later and later and later. And they were just really overwhelmed by the whole experience. And Jimmy, you know, met up with Robbie and said, uh, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know that's no, that wasn't an ego trip. I just, you know, was told I could play whenever I wanted. And that's when I want to play. And Robbie's like, hey, it's cool. Great. You can have Monday morning. Yeah. You know, they, (laughs) with the trash, the band didn't get out there till uh, fly out on the helicopter until 1 a.m. And it was, uh, there was this feeling like anything could have gone wrong at any moment, but for it some reason it it worked out. Yeah, it all worked. <laughs> but after that, they weren't very welcome in the town of Woodstock because they were blamed <laughs> for this crazy it's hippie crap coming <laughs> coming on top of the town. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll play again from from the band, the the album, the band, the Brown album, up on Cripple Creek because maybe they were up on Cripple Creek. Huh? That's right. You can't not play that. <laughs> right. Get off of this mountain You know where I wanna go Straight down the Mississippi River To the Gulf of Mexico Yeah, so they, I don't think they make it in the movie either. I think they're cut. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I, I think I saw a little clip of them. Are they? At Woodstock, but maybe not. I haven't seen that I movie in ages. <laughs> anyway, well, around that time, one of the things that happened was happening that was really kind of disrupting their connection as a band was that uh, Levon, Richard, and Rick started playing around with heroin. Oh, yeah. And that just kind of, of people did right made it that. difficult. Robbie is sitting there trying to get them to write with him and to practice and to play, and they just were not, you know, accessible. And he realized that they were such a democratic band that this was a real problem because 
you know, they all needed to be functioning for their magic to happen. And mm -hmm. it, and it just wasn't, um, they, he couldn't rely on it. You know, they, he didn't know when they were going to all be there or not, but they did do, you know, several more albums, uh, through oh, yeah, this. They, were, they were pretty prolific yeah. uh, here through the seventies. Yeah. Their next one was stage fright. Yeah. Uh, by that time writing was getting a little bit painful for Robbie because of not having his pals to, you know, collaborate with him. And some of the songs, that are on that album reflect what he was feeling about his bandmates at that time. For example, The Shape I'm In, he wrote for Richard, which is, you know, oh, you don't know The Shape I'm In. He was not in good shape. <laughs> and Stage Fright, he wrote for Rick and the W.S. Walcott Medicine Show for Levon. And they were all kind of undertones of madness and self-destruction in that in that period of time and in those songs that he was writing. Well, let's take a moment, and this is from 1970's Stage Fright. Let's play Stage Fright. Now deep in the heart of a lonely kid Suffered so much for what he did They gave this poor boy his played all three of them <laughs> i mean uh, pieces of them so yeah. it's so hard to pick uh with these guys we we, we only got about an hour show folks yeah. so know. you know and it just goes to show just how great these guys were we, you know to make it so difficult to to find the songs that kind of tell the story mm -hmm. so many do and you know there are three songs written for three of the members of the band that are are going through tough times so and then we kind of run through uh, several other songs from 
71 to 75. Anything particular really uh, you want to touch on? Well, I I wanted to mention that in the album Cahoots and also on the the live album, which is called Rock of Ages, so those are 71, 72, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our old friend Alan Toussaint, the um, New Orleans piano player, producer, singer, band leader, uh, scored the horn parts for a lot of the songs on both those albums. And he actually scored the live show, Rock of Ages live show, which was quite uh, an interesting story of him coming up to um, record with them and help them out and losing his charts on the airplane and then having to score them all over again from scratch. And just, he's just a an amazing, he's a, a total genius with scoring and producing. So one of the songs from actually both of those albums that really show the horn parts is Life is a Carnival, which grew out of Robbie's time. He, he worked at a ragtime carnival when he was a teenager in Toronto. And uh, actually all the I guys- I did that for a while. Did you? Yeah, I did. Wow. I, uh, I used to do some of the games and uh, and then uh, trade the mirrors, if you remember back in You the... had a nice loud voice for getting all those <laughs> all those people in to waste their money. Uh, yes, <laughs> and it was a great waste of money. Yes. <laughs> so, but uh, all right, let's play a little of Cronerville. And just so you know, I picked all three songs from... Uh, Rock of Ages, uh, the uh, uh, Shape I'm In, Stage Fright, and uh, W.S. Walcott. Yeah. You can walk on the water, drown in the sand. fun yeah yeah that new orleans kind of sound comes across in uh, some of those songs on that album oh yeah yeah the next album they did was a, an album just of covers called moondog oh, matinee yes. yeah one of the reasons was that because some of the band members were you know kind of inaccessible and unavailable they weren't coming up with any new material and they just thought let's just try to get back to having some fun with each other uh-huh. and so they play you know they chose all of these great songs it's a great album and and they of course their covers are like nobody else's covers so well and i'll tell you i'm trying to play as much live music because there's such a great live band so it's not surprising they'd go and go back and do a covers album with uh, with their own unique spin on it mm-hmm. yeah and mystery train uh, robbie even wrote some additional words for it so mm-hmm. yeah and then i think they got one more album before they get to the last waltz here and I, I know they have one album that they do afterwards in 77 um but uh, you know i think they were done by then right well so, one of the things that happened was they all moved to malibu which was kind of oh, a big that's change a great from idea. woodstock <laughs> they met david <laughs> let's Geffen. see we're on drugs let's yeah. move to la yeah yeah <laughs> yeah things didn't get any better no in la but you know they went on tour
tour uh, with Dylan again. That was an interesting thing in oh, 1974. That's right. that's right. mm-hmm. I actually saw that tour. That was one of my first concerts really? at the LA Forum. Uh-huh. And just loved the band more than Dylan. I just just was like blown sky high by their performance and all their harmonies and everything. I even wrote about it in my American Literature Journal the next day. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, we'll have to get a copy of that and put it up yeah, on I'm Facebook. I'm not sure I still have it. <laughs> and they released uh, an album of the Basement Tapes, which was some of the yeah. some of the recordings they'd done from when they were in the Big Pink. They had to re they had to fix them up a little bit, but they realized they were so many bootlegs going around, they might as well do their own. And then they did an album called Northern Lights, Southern Cross. Um, Robbie started writing again, and he, um, one of the best songs off that album, I think, is Ophelia, oh, which is Jesus, yes. amazing and perfect for Leave On and, you know, a kind of a modern day Shakespearean uh, story is the way he talks about it. That's his favorite track on that album pure jubilant pleasure that's what we're gonna play ladies and gentlemen ophelia played that version from the last waltz that's the official end of the band uh, and uh, and i believe that's the end of the book too right yep he uh he ends the book at the end of the last waltz there, you know a few more comments but yeah that's where he decided to stop wow that's kind of interesting because yeah. there's a lot of shit that goes on afterwards yep. I know Levon talked a little bit about it in his biography. Right. But it yeah. ends on the last waltz. Let's talk about the last yeah. waltz. Kind of an important concert, huh? Definitely. You know, one of the things that propelled them that way and to do a last waltz was them all realizing that, you know, being on the road and kind of getting caught up in this crazy lifestyle, you know, there were so many destructive influences and at least a few, you know, like Robbie says, they weren't any of them angels. I mean, he he and Garth did drugs too, but it was the other three guys that really got more, you know, more involved in it. Uh, You know, they all had horrible injuries for one reason or another. And this year, in this year, 1976, Richard fell off the back of a speedboat while they were on their way to a festival and snapped his neck and um, also was still really, really heavily into drugs and heroin and alcohol. Maybe that's why he fell off a speedboat. It could be. And Robbie (laughs) had started to think about, you know, maybe they should get off the road before something really bad happened. You know, they wanted, he wanted to help Richard and they all wanted to help Richard but they didn't know about things like rehab and all that stuff. Oh, no, there wasn't a lot of that No, and they had been touring for 15 or 16 years and it was becoming a painful chore. Yeah. So they yeah. they got this idea, you know, they were all on board for it. Um, they needed to kind of go out with a bang and start to rest and get back to 
productivity. So I don't think it was kind of considered like this was going to be the end of the band, but that this was going to be the last live show that they were going to do, kind of like the Beatles and the Beach Boys, or, well, or at least Brian Wilson it decided. It kind of ended up being the end of the band. Yep. Yeah. So um, they got together with, of course, Bill Graham and uh, Martin Scorsese and had this idea of having it filmed. They chose, first they were just going to have Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan be their guests because they were so important in the germination of their mm -hmm. sound and mm -hmm. everything. But then they just kind of kept adding people and they had this idea that they wanted their guests to represent different kinds of music. Mm -hmm. So they got Eric Clapton for the British Blues, Dr. John for New Orleans, right. Joni Mitchell for female songwriters, Canadian songwriters, Muddy Waters for the Chicago Blues, Paul Butterfield as the harmonica master, Neil Diamond for that kind oh, of Tin Pan, Pan Alley, Alley right, tradition. Right, right, right. They had Actually, he and Robbie worked on some stuff together. And Van Morrison for Irish R&B, Neil Young for Canada. And then later on, after the concert was over, he realized they hadn't included gospel and country. So they oh, recorded. All the staples and yeah, uh, Emmy Lou. Right, right, um, right. Afterwards yeah, yeah, and incorporated yeah. that into the music. Mm -hmm. So into the, um, the, the movie and the album. So. Do you know, I, you know, we're working on a Bill Graham episode right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that we discovered was that uh, unlike Bill, there was no mention of the guests before the show. It was the band and the band was going to play. Right. And there might be some guests. Right. But you didn't know who it was. Right. And then I know. you got, the, you know, this giant set of, uh, you know, these great artists all at the same time. It's, Can uh, you imagine? it's really amazing. And it's, and it's just the way it's filmed is beautiful. It's just really, I, I can watch that uh, that movie over and over again. No yeah, problem. Yeah, it was really special. I mean, they had the, you know, there was a little tension between Bill Graham and Martin Scorsese because. Really? I can't imagine yeah. that. Because <laughs> Two New Yorkers screaming at each other? <laughs> Uh, Plus who they, would know? They had different goals. You know, Bill Graham was yeah. about the audience yep, and the, the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Martin was setting up cameras mm -hmm. all over the place. And Bill was like, <laughs> yes. how are people supposed to see with that camera there? And it was a huge, uh, like so many balls in the air. It was kind of amazing that it really, you know, came off the way it did. Mm -hmm. And um, they flew into San Francisco and uh, Robbie was still writing music both in the hotel and during the, you know, the beginning of the, when the people came in and they were having their Thanksgiving dinner with tables and tablecloths and, you know, waltzing and all that stuff. Oh yeah. There's, yeah, there's all kinds of things. Yeah. That goes on. Robbie was still working on his song Evangeline and yeah, Lawrence also. Lawrence Ferenghetti comes in, Ferlinghetti from um, City Lights and does a poem and all, right. know, there's and all they, kinds of crazy they stuff. They had like scenery there. from the San Francisco Opera. Yeah. Uh, oh, the the uh, the um, uh, chandeliers are nice. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's boy, it's how the last concert I want to have. Right. You know, put it I that know. way. Too bad I was too young and stupid to know I should have gone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's see. We got to play a song, and we're only going to get one song to play from the last waltz. Oh, it's so hard so to choose. I can't pick it. I you gonna have to pick it. Oh dear. Just one? Just one. Oh, my God. Um, I think, uh, 
I kind of like the caravan with Van Morrison. Van the man. Van the man. And he, uh, as Robbie said, he tried on some outfit before the concert. And when it was time, <laughs> he came on in this, like what he called, like kind of like an acrobat's outfit, you know, like yeah, red, yes. red kind Rather of track tight. pants. Uh, yep. And he w- couldn't figure out why is Van wearing that until the end of the, <laughs> until the end of the um, song, he realized Van was like kicking his legs up really high and punching the air and kind of doing this really very physical performance. Yeah. And um, it's just electric. It is. It yeah. is. It's one of my favorites from that show. So although, boy, there are a lot. But I let's know. let's end uh, with a little bit of, of Caravan here. So here you go, folks. Yeah, that'll do it. Man, it's just, I mean, Bob Dylan's uh, Carry Me Down is great. Uh, Neil Young. Um, Heartless. Uh, heart, uh, no, no, help us, help us. Yeah, with uh, Joni with Mitchell Joni backing Mitchell. In, him up. Off stage. Yeah, yeah, they didn't know she, they didn't want to announce her yeah. before it was her turn to yeah. come on. Yeah. And the yeah. audience was all like, where's where that, that ethereal, <laughs> magical, yeah. angelic voice yeah. coming from? And of course, Ronnie Hawkins uh, is there, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton. Oh, man. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it was, and Ringo um, and oh, Ronnie right. Wood Ringo came out at the yeah. end yeah, to play, play with them, bit, to right. jam. Yeah, yeah. For the band the that end. didn't jam, yeah. they had some jam sessions at yeah. the end. So what do you think of the book? It's kind of weird. It ends right here, but, you know, maybe there's a volume two coming, huh? It could be, though. I, I saw him on his book tour yes, talking, did. and yes. he didn't he didn't mention a, a sequel, but it seems like there should be. Yeah, there was, uh, basically, it ends like they, you know, it was great, and they all looked at each other, and they had this great moment and realized they didn't done a great job. Everybody, you know, showed up and, you know, did their part. Richard was in good form, and you know, nobody was fucked up and, you know, screwed up. And, you know, it was it was an amazing way to end it. But the end of the book is kind of sad because you can tell, you know, well, you know that they don't stay together. But yeah. that wasn't the plan for the last waltz that they were going to break up. And Robbie, you know, talks about getting together to start recording the new album and nobody shows up. Uh, that's kind of the way it ends. That's Island, right? Yeah, yeah, I think he said he knew that they would fulfill their last responsibilities and commitments. So I, I'm assuming he means that they they owed one more record on their contract and they and they did that record. But he doesn't really talk about what happened after the last waltz. But he does give very beautiful kind of odes to each band member at the end of the book where, you know, you really feel like there's no he's not nitpicking at people. I know they're 
was there were some things that happened afterwards that were you know they there was some court cases about publishing rights and stuff like that but he he really shows that he totally respects admires and you know and just loves each member of that band and what they all contributed to the sound that they made right Right. And well, it it definitely was a a unique moment in rock and roll history. It really is a a great group and worthy of the name, the band. That's right. So let's leave it at that. You think the book is great? I do. I don't think you read a bad one. I mean, pretty much, you pretty much can. When when I start them, if if they're not good, I don't finish them. There you go, folks. So So they've got to be good. And you've got to read the book, everybody. There's so many great stories in this book. I couldn't, I mean, it's hard to have talked about it in an hour. Right, right. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, diggers, the rock and roll librarian has read testimony for you, suggests that you go out and get it. We'll have another rock and roll library coming up next month. Uh, Until then, hey, keep up the rocking. Keep it up. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes please visit rnrap.com for more information.